Femoral is a production of iHeart 3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. Human beings have been building musical instruments for tens of thousands of years. Chasing different timbres, textures, and ranges possible in the acoustic world. And then, in the 20th century, a whole new palette of sounds emerged. This is a Moog synthesizer. Moogs were the most popular and innovative synthesizers of the 1960s and 70s, and they were the first synths to be widely accessible by musicians across the world. Nowadays, Moog Music is a very different company, but they still create new keyboards and sounds. Ephemeral producer Trevor Young took a trip to Moog headquarters to learn more about these machines and the history behind their creation. Let's see. I'm walking through the Moogseum in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm surrounded by keyboards, synthesizers, and all sorts of other gadgets that I'm not smart enough to recognize. But they're letting me play on some of the synthesizers here, and I'm getting a personal tour from a very special guest. Hi, I'm Michelle Mogkusa. I'm the executive director of the Bob Moog Foundation and the Moogseum. I'm also Bob Moog's third daughter. We walk around a corner to find a huge collage taking up an entire wall, all about Moog Synthesizer's founder, Bob Moog. What we have here is kind of summarizes his legacy, innovation, creativity, and inspiration. There's a little passage here that says, Welcome to the Moogseum, where Bob Moog's life, work, and legacy come alive to inspire curiosity and creativity and to give us insight into one of electronic music's most important pioneers. So kind of the crowning the back of the Moogseum, we have an immersive half dome that teaches people how electricity turns into sound when it's traveling through a circuit board. So this is essentially the very heart of Bob's work that we wanted to bring forward. So why don't we listen to at least the first minute of it. Sound is the movement of air perceived by our ears. An electric speaker creates sound by vibrating air molecules using a moving membrane. By changing the rate of current flow through the magnetic field, a speaker membrane can be vibrated at different frequencies to create any kind of sound. It might seem like a lot of science and terminology to take in, but we're going to walk you through how synthesizers work. Probably the best place to start is with the history of how synthesizers came into being. The Moog machine here has made a startling contribution to the new Bach rage. It can do anything but stand up and take a bow. It can produce almost any kind of variation on pure sound, including some sounds uh, that have never been heard before, on this earth at least. And these sounds can then be dubbed onto tape in any combination from interplanetary noises to a Bach fugue. Synthesis technology first appeared in post-World War II North America. By the late 1940s, engineers were starting to play around with manipulating electrical currents and the sounds they make. In 1948, Canadian engineer Hugh Lacane developed the SACBUT, 
a sort of early rudimentary synthesizer. And in 1957, a team at RCA Labs created the Mark II synthesizer, a massive unit that was essentially glued to a laboratory in Princeton, New Jersey. But the invention of synthesizers as we know them today is almost entirely credited to one man, Bob Moog. I asked Michelle to tell us about Bob and how he ended up creating one of the world's most popular instruments. My dad was an only child of George and Shirley Moog. My grandpa George was an electrical engineer for Con Edison. He was also an amateur woodworker, and you'll understand why I'm telling you that in a minute. They lived in Flushing, Queens, New York, and my grandfather had a very well-outfitted basement workshop. And my grandfather was kind of quiet and more reserved and introverted. And I would say that my father was also more quiet and introverted and highly intelligent and interested in science from a very early age in all kinds of science. At the age of 10 years old, he wrote a letter to his aunt and his grandmother proclaiming his hobbies. And in his hobbies included chemistry, electrochemistry, biology, physics. He was obviously very influenced by his father. At the same time, at the age of six years old, he began taking piano lessons. My grandmother had a great desire for him to be a concert pianist. And so she made sure that he practiced every day. As a matter of fact, he used to tell us stories that she would wrap him on the knuckles with a wooden spoon when he, he messed up. So there was no messing up. And I think he did enjoy playing the piano, but not necessarily under those circumstances. He did become quite proficient at it and went on to study at the Manhattan School of Music. And he was offered to pursue a professional accompanist track, which he declined. Pretty early at 10 years old, he started making small electronic hobbyist projects with his father. I think part of it was they would both escape down into the basement just to get a break as introverts like to do. That is where my father's work in electronics started and they would make three note organs and my dad actually made Geiger counters. Eventually, by the time he was around 14, 15, he found an article in, I think it was called Radio News, about how to build your own theremin. And that is when he fell in love with a theremin, which is an early electronic musical device that was invented by the Russian physicist Leon Theremin. If you've never heard or seen a theremin, they're incredibly unique instruments. They're perhaps the only instrument you play without touching them. Instead, you move your hands around an antenna, and the proximity and movement of the hand generates an eerie sound from the theremin. Here's a demonstration from Leon Theremin himself. dad really was captivated by not only this kind of magical interface where you produce sound with an instrument that you don't touch, but he was captivated by the elegance and simplicity of Leon Theremin's circuitry design. And at that time, theremins were no longer in production. So he 
worked at perfecting his own design. This is when he was about 15. By the time he was 19, he was proficient enough that he wrote an article for radio and television news called The Theremin, and it was an instructional on how to build your own theremin. But what happened is that people had a hard time finding the parts. They were somewhat esoteric. These were, at that time, vacuum tube-based theremins with big copper coils that were, you know, maybe even a foot tall and required 175 rounds of, of copper. I can remember my father telling me that's one of the things he excelled at, that he would wind the copper coils, he would design the circuitry. Grandpa helped him some with that. Grandpa built the wooden cabinets for his theremins, and they both did some of the kind of silk screening that went on the front interface. But what happened with the article is that people didn't find that they excelled at winding copper coils like Bob did or finding the parts. And so they wrote him and said, where can I get a full-built theremin? And so my father started RA Moog Co. with my grandfather's support to not only sell theremin parts, but also fully built theremins. That was the beginning. Bob's theremin business was booming. He was selling his own models left and right. And this success is what laid the conceptual groundwork and provided the financial means for his work to come in synthesis. What happened is he was at a music educators conference in New York, repping his theremins, and a young professor from Hofstra University approached him and said, listen, I have one of your Melodia theremins. I use it in my ear training classes. And I'm an experimental jazz composer as well as being a professor of music. And there are all these sounds that I'd like to make in my experimental jazz compositions that I just can't make with splicing tape, which is the technology that was available then. This gentleman's name was Herb Deutsch. And he said to my dad, do you think you could help me build something that would make these sounds that I'm envisioning for my compositions? And so that began a year-long conversation that ended in the summer of 1964 when Herb, with a $200 grant from Hofstra University, spent three weeks during that summer working with my dad on creating the first prototype of the Moog synthesizer. And essentially, it was this collaboration where Herb would say, listen, as a musician, this is what I need. And my dad would build it. And then Herb would test it and say, I need more of this or less of this. Okay, well, well, now we have this say the oscillator, a tone generating source, then what? Well, then I need to sculpt it somehow. So they worked together over three weeks and then they eventually brought in other people over the summer. And my dad lectured on this voltage controlled synthesis that he had developed in October of 1964 at the Audio Engineering Society. So this big board here is where the sound is made. And appropriately enough, we call it the analog board. A lot of parts on here. Each section of this board here corresponds to one section of the of the front panel. These are called connectors here, bring in the electrical signals that tell the analog circuitry what pitch to go at, when to start a note, and when to stop it, and so on. And he started selling his modules at that convention, and that is when he was offered a booth that someone else had vacated. He didn't even plan on exhibiting there. So he was there with like a bridge table with some kind of bohemian tablecloth of my mom's and a few little modules. I mean, this had just started. 
And he started getting orders. He got an order from Alwan Nikolai, Wendy Carlos. And uh, by hitting a note on the keyboard, now I'm connected up, so I'll hear that one sound. It's a very low sound. It's very bright. If I manually turn this knob, you'll listen to the sound get considerably duller. Here, it gets very dull down here. It's very bright here. Prior to Bob Moog, there had been some work in synthesis already. We mentioned a few examples at the beginning, like the RCA Mark II. There were people working in synthesis prior to that. Harold Boda was one of those people. And also Vladimir Yusachevsky, who was working at the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Studio, they had the RCA Mark synthesizer. The RCA synthesizer was this huge room-sized synthesizer that functioned by punch tape. So it was very, very different, and it was really run by academics. But Bob was a musician, so he wanted to create something not to be studied in a lab, but to be used for the purposes of musical expression. What Bob Moog did is he took the synthesis that had already begun to be developed and created a system that was accessible to musicians. Now, at the very beginning, it was accessible to, you know, maybe some more experimental musicians originally. But eventually, a few people, a few very talented people who were able to understand modular synthesis decided to rep those instruments. I'm thinking right now of Paul Beaver and Bernie Krause on the West Coast. What they did is they tried to sell Moog synthesizers in Los Angeles, and they had a really hard time. The modulars were big, heavy, hard to transport, very expensive. They cost as much as a small house at that time, and they were having a hard time getting people to embrace them. They talked to someone at their record label. They actually had a record, kind of, that was a demonstration of the Moog synthesizer, on none such records and they talked to Jack Holzman who was the CEO and said you know we're having a hard time getting people to understand these instruments what do you think we should do he said why don't you bring them to the Monterey Pop Festival which happened in the summer of 1967 and they did that and what they didn't expect is that they were absolutely mobbed with people. They had a tent with a Moog modular in it, and they were mobbed with people to the extent that they had to have security assist them in creating a line. But what came out of that is the monkeys. The doors. Simon and Garfunkel. And the birds. All subsequently bought Moog synthesizers. The Doors were the first to use it later in 1967. 
And by the time 1969 rolled around, the Beatles were using it. It should go without mentioning that in there, Wendy Carlos came out with the groundbreaking records with Chambal. which didn't just use it as these cool sounds in the background, but it used it exclusively. It was an entire album of Bach music translated with the Moog synthesizer, which is incredibly hard to do. Wendy told me that it would take her 20 minutes to do nine notes because she was constantly having to patch and repatch. And then Keith Emerson of Emerson, Lycan Palmer, actually then of The Nice, heard Switched on Bach. And then he got a huge modular system. So it was really these very ambitious musicians, all in their own ways, who helped bring the Moog synthesizer to the fore of the public consciousness. And it was the earliest use of synthesis in that way. Now, Don Buchla also developed a synthesizer at about the same time that Bob did, but his approach was very different. They were not quite as accessible to most musicians. So they were a little bit more what you might call experimental. So not as well known. The Moog synthesizers, they were the tool of popular musicians, and that is why they came into the popular consciousness earlier and in a much stronger way than any other synthesizer at that time. As Moog synthesizers picked up in popularity, you heard them everywhere. And so the sound of the Moog became a distinct cultural statement. I had an older sister that was a big Beatles and a Monkees fan. So those were two of the first pop groups that actually used the synthesizer in a recording. And I remember hearing that, I must have been you know, eight or nine years old or whatever, and going, you know, well, what's that sound? You know, that's, that's interesting. There's something about there that really kind of pulls you in, you know, if you resonate with that sort of thing. <laughs> My name is August Worley. I'm an electrical engineer and a musician and a former Mo music technician, both up in Buffalo, New York, at the old factory and uh, down here in Asheville at the, uh, the newer factory. I work for Bob uh, in developing the Mini Moog Voyager synthesizer. I asked August where his story with synthesizers began and his answer surprised me. I started working on my own equipment as a bassist, you know, amplifiers and designing speaker cabinets and just started tinkering around, taking apart my parents' stereo systems. And I decided to buy a Moog Taurus bass pedal synthesizer. And so that was my first synthesizer. And reading up on it and uh, exploring all the sounds, it was a really good rudimentary primary sort of synthesizer because it didn't have all the bells and whistles. It was pretty much straight ahead, you know, it didn't have all the modulation or noise or any of those other things. It was very utilitarian. And it was just a lot of fun to work with that technology, as well as being a bass player. 
people marvel at Getty Lee or whatever because all the stuff he, he had. I never even heard of Getty Lee when I was doing all that, you know? <laughs> as August got more interested, he started thinking about synth technology as a future career path. And one day, that opportunity fell into his lap. I was um, getting close to graduating. I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I think it was about two weeks before I graduated when uh, my lab partner sat down before class and said, hey, uh, I've got a friend of mine that works at Moe Music. And he said that they're hiring. I'm going to go down there and put in a job application. You want to go? <laughs> and it was like, well, let me think about that. Yes. <laughs> and the interesting thing was that I always like to tell people that my first job was working on the space shuttle. At the time, Mo Music had a subcontract with Fisher Price Toy Manufacturing Company to do a little space shuttle. The Alpha Pro, the Alpha Recon sled here, the electronic sound system, blast off. Communications and red alert to astropilots here and here. Life support cable for spacewalking and docking. Looks great. Now for the crucial test. The Electronic Alpha Probe by Fisher Price. They needed testers, audio testers for the little circuit boards that went into their space shuttle. I listened to uh, this little space shuttle board make, uh, you know, sample and hold noises and takeoff noises and all that kind of stuff for, I think, about two weeks. It was a second shift job. But August wanted to do more. He wanted to build his own synthesizers. So he found a clever way to do that. I built a Moog source from rejected parts from the assembly line. You're going to throw that digital board out? <laughs> May I have it? So I just started taking parts home and building the unit up, and I still have it. And that was just the beginning of a long and storied career in audio engineering. I figured August would be the perfect person to help us understand how synthesizers actually work. Probably the first place to start with thinking about how a synthesizer works is the concept of a, an input and an output, where there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to the signal path until it comes out the other end, which can then be amplified and, and heard. So the first place to start was the concept of voltage control, where you have a control voltage, which doesn't really make a sound in and of itself, but it tells things like oscillators and filters and envelope generators what to do. So an oscillator is a periodic waveform generator. By inputting a control voltage into it of a certain level, you can control the frequency of it. You can control the pitch. So that lends itself to being able to be connected to something that has a discrete incremental array, like a keyboard, so that when you move left to right, the voltage goes up and therefore the pitch will follow that control voltage. And so the keyboard is a good starting point for that, but you don't have to use a keyboard to control the pitch of the oscillator. You can use anything that creates a voltage. Kraftwerk, the guys used to have suit jackets that uh, had conductive lapels. Or when you touch the lapel of their jacket, you could generate a control voltage and put it into a, you know, the synthesizer. So you'd use your clothing as a control voltage source. The more oscillators you add, the more textures you can add to the sound and uh, different waveforms that you can create. 
in order to thicken the sound and give the oscillator a different texture. That's how you can emulate some of the real instruments, such as, you know, saxophone, which is a sawtooth wave. Oboes are a triangle wave. So you can emulate real instruments or just completely derive a texture out of your imagination by what you have. One of the most popular features of a synthesizer is the sequencer. A sequencer basically is just what it says. You're able to put an array of elements in a row in order to create melodies or ostinato patterns. That is a pattern that repeats. And I remember there was always this debate about having sequencers there at all because now you're turning it over to robots, but it's like anything else with music, depends on how your approach is. Let's demonstrate. While I was touring the Moogseum and playing around with the synthesizers, I got to try out a few sequencers. Listen for all the different patterns they can create. Sequencers are just one of the many innovations Bob Moog developed specifically for musicians. As Michelle Moog said earlier, Bob was devoted to serving musicians. August agrees with that entirely. From the mid-60s to the, pretty much till when the Minimo came along, sequencers were big, expensive, and complicated, and were only available to the very wealthy or to large universities or organizations, recording studios, that sort of thing. And then by the time the 70s came along, there was a certain credibility associated with the synthesizer. It looked like people were actually using these creatively. Moog was exceptional in that we did listen to the musicians. What the musicians were looking for always informed the design. You know, to try to, again, make these more available for common musicians in order to give them the tools. With the success of the first Moog, the Moog Modular, Business was good throughout the mid-60s. But by around 1969, it became obvious that people needed something that was more affordable, that was more portable. Here's Michelle Moog again. At the same time, RE Moog Co. was having a hard time supporting itself because there was a huge sell of modulars, but then it kind of peaked and declined, and the company was in financial trouble. So while my dad was actually out looking for someone to invest in his company to help it survive, a couple of his engineers started coming up with the idea of building something that was much smaller, that was very basic. So they came up with what would become the prototypes for the Mini Moog. In an analog synthesizer like this, we start out with an oscillator. An oscillator produces a steady pitch sound. And then this synthesizer 
we can control the oscillator sound from either the keyboard, from a pitch wheel, or automatically through modulation. The Mini Moog would essentially be a smaller, more condensed version of the Moog Modular. It could almost fit in your lap, and it had only a fraction of the features. But it was more accessible. Bob initially did not like the idea of taking these glorious modulars that had over 250,000 different sounds and minimizing it down to something, you know, much, much less than that. But his engineers realized that if the company were to survive, they had to make something smaller. The result was the Minimoog, which later became the best-selling analog synthesizer of all time. 12,269 units were produced between 1970 and 1982. And that basically set a course for Moog synthesizers after that to be accessible. There was a variety of things that happened to Moog synthesizers after that. They became smaller and smaller. Some of them with less capability, but still very robust sound, just trying to address different needs in the marketplace. They started incorporating things like small ribbon controllers so that there was different ways to access the sound. After that, the memory Moog made use of stored presets, which some of the instruments did not have before that time. And eventually some of the instruments became MIDI capable. And that's about when that part of Moog music ended. The mid-80s is when everything changed for synthesis. With the invention of MIDI, that is, Musical Instrument Digital Interface, analog synths such as Moog became old news. Digital keyboards like the Yamaha DX7 became the music industry standard, much to the dismay of engineers like August. It's funny, everybody at Moog just really hated the sound. We are so used to the analog sound and, and those textures and that warmth that hearing these digital keyboards. Really, these things, these guys are kicking our ass in the marketplace because we think they sound horrible. <laughs> I'm sure you know the sound. Stuff like aha. Or Alphaville. You heard the same four or five sounds on the radio all the time. You know, as soon as the latest hit Top 40 song came on and the guy takes a keyboard solo. They go, oh yeah, that's preset number 23 on the DX7 because everybody's using that one, you know. The problem with those keyboards is that they're very difficult to program. You know, that was another thing that we just couldn't get our heads around. It's like, okay, so you've got this sound on your memory mode or whatever, and if you want to change it, all you have to do is grab a knob, and, you know, and there it is. With these things, you know, you had to go into submenus after submenu after submenu in order to change a parameter and then enter it, and then hopefully it's what you're after <laughs> because it was such a pain in the ass to go back and change it. <laughs> Some people made entire careers out of programming DX7 sounds. August says that soon enough, digital synthesis expanded to the point where it dominated the music recording industry. Synthesizers were always, at that time, were usually found in the context of a traditional band. So the synthesizer was added into the guitar, bass, and drums, and vocals, and all that other kind of stuff. It was like that little cherry on the top of the cake. 
and then more and more started to overtake the other aspects of the musical composition. So then before you knew it, you had synthesizers that were the drums, synthesizers that were the bass, the synthesizers that were emulating the guitar, using synthesizers in the vocal parts, like with the vocorder. So, you know, this idea of a purely electronic sonic source or modification technology was 95% of the production. From beginning to end, the microphone is probably about the only thing that wasn't an actual digital component of the signal chain. So why was Moog so committed to analog versus digital? We didn't realize it at the time, but as I look back on it now, I think the thing that we were so used to hearing, which is why analog keyboards came back, was that there's a warmth, there's an ephemeral quality to that form of signal generation that I think people connect with in a very different way. And I think from the esoteric perspective, I think it's because we are continuous beings. And so we resonate more strongly with continuous waveforms. Despite whatever your sample rate is on a digital keyboard, you will always have a discrete aspect to the way the digital waveform is being generated because you've basically got a series of ones and zeros that are being read out of memory to create a waveform. It's always going to be, at its very essence, a non-continual waveform, whereas analog is a continual waveform. But by the time we adopted the, the notion of doing a digital synthesizer, the company was already in, in pretty bad shape. The tastes had changed away from analog. And with that, Moog went out of business. The company officially declared bankruptcy in 1987. But that wasn't the end of Moog Music. For a while, things were tough for Bob Moog. Moog Music closed in the late 80s. And in 1994, he lost the rights to his name in the Moog Music trademark. Moog Music in Buffalo went out of business. It started really slowing down and I was laid off at the end of 1984, but they kind of picked up a few service things for them here and there until they just completely closed their doors in 85. But I was always involved with all the different people. It was almost like a family working at that company. So I still maintain connections with a lot of the people from back in the day. An acquaintance that I worked with at Moog Music had contacted me because he had gotten a call from Keith Emerson to do some work for Emerson Lake and Palmer because they were going back out on tour again. And at that time, there was no Moog music and not a whole lot of people knew about that technology and I happened to be one of them. So that's how I sort of slid into that. So I got to tour with Emerson Lake and Palmer off and on for about three years. Meanwhile, Bob Moog was determined to get the rights to his name back. In 2002, after a lengthy legal battle, Bob succeeded, and he reopened Moog Music in Asheville, North Carolina. August Worley was one of the first to hear that Bob was back in business. I saw that Bob Moog was announcing that he was going to be doing another synthesizer, like one last synthesizer. He had said that, you know, he realized he was getting on in years and wanted to take some of the stuff that was in his head and dump it into younger heads. And I sort of took notice of that. 
eventually got around to just calling him out of the blue. I introduced myself as Bob, uh, we've never met, but I've worked for everybody you've ever hired back at the old Moog Music. And I'm three names down from you in the special thanks liner notes on the last Emerson Lincoln Palmer album. So that kind of caught his attention. <laughs> I showed him all my you know, materials for the work for Keith and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And he knew all the guys that I worked with. He said, right, okay, you're, you're in. I like what I see. The next thing I know, I'm helping Bob Moog do another synthesizer. August worked closely with Bob to develop the mini Moog Voyager a successful return to form for the Moog synthesizer. The 2000s saw a renewed interest in analog synthesizers, and Moog was once again a thriving and innovative business. Here's Michelle Moog. The modern-day Moog Music, which is located here in Asheville, has a long line of incredible synthesizers, starting with the Voyager, and they are constantly innovating and evolving as well selling thousands and tens of thousands of instruments all over the world every year. August Worley was a huge part of that success. He says getting to work with Bob Moog was one of the greatest experiences of his life. I had a father that I loved very much, but Bob was kind of the father that understood me (laughs) because we used to complete each other's sentences, you know, having been involved in that professional capacity. I think the biggest thing that Bob did for me is that he made me be more confident in my ideas. So I wasn't afraid to present some of these crazy ideas that kind of popped into my head. You know, I remember having a conversation once with him where I was sort of outlining, oh yeah, and then I worked for this company and here's what we did for a radar simulator or a pre-press computer system or interfacing a deck mainframe with an Apple II. And the thing he said to kind of close out the conversation was, you know, I really envy you, your broadness of your level of expertise and experience. He said, all I've ever done is work on synthesizers. (laughs) And it was kind of like, okay, well, you know, you pretty much invented the bloody industry. I mean, I don't think I have to really apologize. (laughs) Bob Moog is envious of my experience and professional, you know, (laughs) credentials. It's like, okay, whatever. (laughs) I asked Michelle Moog what it was like growing up with Bob for a dad. He held his career at arm's length from us just because I think he was a little uncomfortable with his celebrity and his fame. And he really just wanted a place where he could be Bob or dad. I would say I knew a very kind of surface level. We all knew that dad had invented the Moog synthesizer. We knew that he was famous. We knew that he had gotten a Grammy. We knew that he knew and loved a lot of very cool musicians, that he was revered, that he wrote articles in well-known magazines. We had a solid idea of his stature. What we didn't realize is maybe the impact of his work. The only access I really ever had to his work in my early years was when he did have either a basement workshop in our house or a workshop across the driveway. I would go at night in my pajamas to give him a kiss goodnight because his routine was he would stop working around six or seven, we'd have dinner that my mom always cooked and then my parents would take a little nap and then my dad would go back out to work until 11 o'clock or midnight. 
So by the time it was time for me to go to bed around 8.30 or whatever it was, depending on how old I was, I would pad out to the driveway and I would always kind of stand at the threshold of the office before opening the door just to listen to what my dad was doing. I had no context for understanding it, but I was interested. And then I would, you know, go in and, and just give him a kiss goodnight, but it was always kind of clear when we went in the workshop that we weren't there for long. You know, he was busy and he was very serious and very focused. And so it was just a, a quick, brief, tender moment. And then I would I would leave. So he never said, hey, come look at this mini Moog or I've gotten the Moog prototype here, which he did in 1982. I think he restored the Moog prototype for the Henry Ford Museum and he never showed it to us. He was so humble. This humility was kind of legendary and that extended to our household. He just didn't make a big deal out of his own work to the extent that in his later years when he was up for a technical Grammy, my stepmother said to him, you know, Bob, you've got to tell the kids. And he said, why? What's it matter? <laughs> I did have a little bit more awareness as I got a little older and then probably the pinnacle of my understanding prior to my father's illness was when I was about 21, I was a senior in college. My dad actually invited me to come to a NAM show with him, which is the first time he had ever done anything like that. I don't think I had spent any time alone with my father like that prior to that. So I went to the NAM show with him and it was a very weird experience seeing how revered he was to the extent that there was a guy who dropped to his knees in front of my dad and just just like, oh my God, you're Bob Moog, you're my hero. He went on and on and made my dad so uncomfortable. Nothing against the guy doing that, but... <laughs> and I just felt like I was having this totally surreal out-of-body experience because here I am just walking around with my cool, geeky dad and all of a sudden there's all this adulation going on. But there were some other experiences similar to that that helped me understand some of the impact he had. But the real impact came when he got ill in the late spring of 2005. He discovered that he had a brain tumor. And unfortunately, it was inoperable and things rather quickly declined. And at one point, uh, my brother Matthew set up a page on thecaringbridge.com for him to be able to journal out how he was doing. And it was really, he didn't, but other people in the family did, just to keep people apprised. And originally it was just meant for 40 people, 40 of his friends around the world, but it quickly became public. And in the first seven weeks, 60,000 people went on that site. Bob Moog passed away on August 21st, 2005. On the day he died, 20,000 people logged on to the site and over 4,000 people left testimonials on that page speaking to how Bob Moog had inspired them, how he had changed their life, how he had transformed their life, how because of Bob Moog they were musicians, how Bob Moog gave them their creative voice, how Bob Moog inspired them to be an engineer, and these testimonials just went on and on and on. At the time, I owned a, a small business of my own. I had two young children, five and 10 years old, and I would um, go at night and help take care of him. And then when I would put my kids to bed, I would go down and I would read these testimonials. And I would honestly just cry the whole time because it was like for the first time someone was introducing me to Bob Moog. 
I did not know Bob Moog until I was 37 and he died. And it was those people through Bridge that not only, you know, knocked down the kind of walls that my father put up around his Bob Moog persona to kind of protect the family from that celebrity, but it enlightened the rest of my family to this incredible depth and breadth that the impact he made had on people all over the world. We had people from 67 different countries leave testimonials. Michelle says those testimonials are what inspired her to create the Bob Moog Foundation in 2006. When you have an inspirational force like that, something that you can use to change the world in a positive way, that it not only deserves to be carried forward, but it really demands to be carried forward because you don't get opportunities like that very often. So it was the family who said, you know, we really, we really need to do something important here. And that's when the foundation was created. The official mission is to inspire people through the intersection of science, music, innovation, and technology, which is essentially a mirror reflection of Bob Moog's legacy itself. Through our three projects, we have three different projects, Dr. Bob Sound School, which is our hallmark educational project that teaches little kids about the science of sound through music and technology. We have the Bob Moog Foundation Archives, which is a vast collection of over 10,000 pieces of archival material that we protect, preserve, and share with other museums and researchers. And then we have the Moogseum in downtown Asheville, North Carolina, that carries that mission forward to inspire both children and adults through all these interactive exhibits that bring Bob Moog's legacy alive, not just his life story and his work story, but the science that really drove his work, the science and engineering that he was so passionate about. One has to wonder, what might Bob Moog have done in today's world with today's technology? Well, Michelle has some insight into that. At the end of his life, he really was more focused, not on synthesis itself, but on how we were accessing synthesizer interfaces. He told one of his engineers at Moog Music that the keyboard was an antiquated interface and that we needed to move on. He told him that when he was moving his office, he was already walking with a cane because his left side had become somewhat debilitated because of his brain tumor, and he knew he wasn't going back. And those were his parting words to that engineer. And my dad had been working on multi-touch sensitive interfaces for decades at that point. And he had been developing a multi-touch sensitive keyboard with an avant-garde opera composer named John Eaton. That kind of work was actually ahead of its time. And what he was aiming for is ubiquitous now. The Rolly controllers, the Hawken Continuum. The Hawken Continuum is a newer instrument made of foam. It's not unlike a keyboard, but you hold it more like a guitar. You can manipulate the sounds based on the speed with which you move your fingers, the amount of pressure you apply, and all sorts of other new parameters.
all of that touch sensitivity, pressure sensitivity, velocity sensitivity, he was working on all of that starting in 1970. He actually told my stepmother that the multi-touch sensitive keyboard he felt was his most important contribution to the world of music. He felt like the world of synthesis had kind of gone far enough, but there wasn't enough human nuance in that world. And that's what he was really interested in near the end of his life. Now I play the, uh, the Hockham Continuum. That is a really interesting technology. The first time I ever checked it out, that foam keyboard idea and being able to interface with the sound in a tactile way led me to believe that it was gonna be a winner. Because there is always going to be that barrier between the musician and the musical instrument. The more seamless that is, the more useful and expressive it is. Because at the end of the day, you know, these are all supposed to be a means of expression for the musician. And so being able to interact with the sound that you're creating is, is imperative. And even Bob recognized that aspect of the synthesizers, which is why you always want to incorporate some wood into the instrument. And we as humans feel connection to that. I think it's because it used to be alive. So being able to connect with that at some level, I think is what makes a, a musical instrument much more expressive. But I kind of think that the actual synthesizer is sort of reached full maturity. I mean, the actual sound source, you can keep adding more stuff onto it, but I think any future progress is probably going to be made in the domain of how we control and express what that sound is. Even still, August says we should continue to explore the world of analog synthesis. There's still plenty of sounds to be discovered. I like to tell the story that some of the best sounds I ever got out of a memory mode was back at the factory on my test bench just before they died. I mean, you know, you'd start playing this thing and it's like, oh, you know, this thing's got a problem. It starts getting all kind of crunchy and like, Trevor, you got to hear this sound, man. This thing sounds like it's just about to like shit the bed, pardon my French. And, you know, you put the headphones on and go, wow, that is amazing. If only we can make it do that all the time. You put the headphones on and play like a couple of chords and then it just stops. It's like, oh crap, now I got to find out what's wrong with it. <laughs> but in that 35 seconds, man, it was like audio bliss. <laughs> This episode of Ephemeral was written and assembled by Trevor Young and produced with Max and Alex Williams. August Worley is a former engineer for Moog Music, and Michelle Moog Kusa is the executive director of the Bob Moog Foundation. Special thanks to Michelle for the tour of the Moogseum, which you can visit anytime you're in downtown Asheville, North Carolina. Links, pictures, sounds, and more on our social media at Ephemeral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.